In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a, I think it's going to be a really good episode. It's going to be, it's actually an episode I've been kind of nervous about doing, but I think we're going to do it justice. We're going to start off by talking about the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, We'll have a, uh, an installment of the uh, injustice system, uh, which we haven't had in a long time. So we'll be talking about the problems with our system of public defenders and finally, we will talk about um, the erosion of the meaning of the word woke in, especially in like conservative uh, discussion in politics. Yeah. I would say that especially the first segment, it's not going to be an exciting episode, but it's going to be a very good episode and a very important episode. Yeah. I think it'll be, yeah, very impactful. And if you're curious, like if you're trying to make sense of the situation in Afghanistan, I think, I think we're going to be able to do that. I think the extent that anyone can <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um yeah and as always if you uh you know love the show and you want to support us you can head on over to our patreon page at patreon.com slash the perspectrum um there's like a month's worth of new content on there thanks to a little bit of time i had over the weekend to actually <laughs> post everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also uh our and that, that includes uh, our Perspectrum After Hours, and it also includes uh, our sources, which yeah. uh, you can actually access even if you are not a patron. Um, we, we try to make sure that our sources are posted so that you can look at the same things that we're looking at. Um, you know, we want to be as transparent as possible. So uh, if you want to you support the show, you should uh, throw a, a few bucks our way. So, Michael, uh, speaking of supporting things, let's talk about the COVID numbers. All right. So worldwide at this point, we're up to 211 million cases, which is up from 206 million last week, which is 5 million new cases this week. Um, That's up from 4 million new cases that we've been seeing each week for the past two weeks. So, you know, another week of pretty big increase in new cases. Um, At this point, we're really looking at like a third worldwide peak in um, daily average new cases. It's very frustrating. Um, so far, 4.41 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 4.35 million a week ago. So that's 60,000 new deaths in a week, which is about the same thing that we've seen, um, uh, for the past couple of weeks. So far, 63 doses of vaccine have gone out for every hundred people, which is up from 55 doses per hundred eight days ago. So that's actually, you know, a pretty, uh, pretty good increase. We got an increase of eight doses per 100 people uh, in just one week. So, yeah, hopefully they keep on that on that trend, and we can uh, actually make like start seeing declining new cases instead of new peaks. Um, in the U.S. at this point, we've hit 38.2 million cases, which is up from 37.3 million a week ago. So that's 900,000 new cases in a week, which is about the same thing we saw uh, last week as well. 
So that's 128,000 new cases a day, which is the second highest it's been, or which is actually the highest it's been since the holidays. So if you remember, we had this big peak as after people got together for Christmas, and and this is uh, this is just under that at this point. So far in the U.S., 642,000 people have died from COVID, which is up from 637,000 the week before, which is 5,000 new deaths in a week. Um, compare that to 4,000 deaths the week before and 3,000 deaths the week before that. At, at this point in the U.S., 51% of the population is fully vaccinated, which is up just 1% from 50% last week. And 60% of the population has at least one dose, uh, which is up from 59% the week before. So both are just up 1% as people slowly trickle into the vaccination clinics. I wish I had more to say, but... <laughs> I think we've it. said it. <laughs> I think we've said it. We've said Get it vaccinated. so many times. I, uh, yeah, it sounds like a we're sounding like a broken record at this point. Just get vaccinated. I, yeah, God, I'm. The fact that we have a vaccine and we're seeing another peak. The fact that I have to wear a mask again. Yeah. The fact that anybody has to wear a mask again when we had a solution and it was working and the cases were going down. Like, can we stop politicizing this, please? Stop politicizing it. All right, you know. Get vaccinated while wearing a shirt that says, you know, Trump 2024 or, mm-hmm. you know, fucking. Uh, well, thanks for the Wi-Fi, Bill Gates or whatever. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the 5G. Yeah, do whatever. It doesn't <laughs> exactly. matter what conspiracy theories you have. Just go just do it. Just get vaccinated. Yeah. I mean. Stand in your sock are, bo- soapbox some other time. Like it. it's not political. It's just not. All right. Yeah. You can believe in like you know, the invisible hand of the free market while still getting <laughs> vaccinated. Now I'll disagree with you on the invisible hand of the free market, but at least that's not going to kill people. Okay. Maybe it will, but no, not directly. <laughs> not directly. <laughs> it's not going to strangle people. <laughs> it's not going to directly kill people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So with that really depressing note, let's talk about Afghanistan, dude. Yeah, let's go even more, even more depressing. Um, yeah. So if you've been paying attention at all, you've been hearing about the situation in Afghanistan. Um, as, you know, it, it, weeks after Biden announced that U.S. troops would be leaving Afghanistan by September 11th, um, a, uh, a little over a year after Trump negotiated an, an uh, a ceasefire and exit with the Taliban, um, which was set for May. We're seeing, you know, the Taliban take over uh, all the major cities in Afghanistan faster than than anyone anticipated. It's at this point, it is a humanitarian crisis, a military crisis, a political crisis, um, and there's just there's a lot of thoughts, a lot of opinions out there. A lot of people that seem to be get like taking away kind of weird messages from yeah. this situation, and so yeah. we wanted to kind of do what we do on this show and think through the policies, think through the principles, and try to make sense of what's going on. Yeah. So first off, I want to talk a little bit about bad faith arguments, not just on the right, but also mm. 
on the left or, you know, on the more center democratic establishment. So one important thing to note is anybody that is making the argument that if Trump was still in office, that this would have been differently, that this would have ended differently. It's just like, they're bullshit. Absolutely not. It's just, there's no reason why it would have been better. Like the fact that Trump after, after all of this happened said, Biden needs to resign in disgrace now because of what happened. If, if Trump's plan, if, if the May deadline, if he had won and he actually did do a withdrawal in May, the exact same thing would have happened under him. So the fact that we also had Mike Pompeo coming on and basically saying, again, this never would have happened if it were us. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it's just complete bullshit. Yeah. On the other side of it, I think there are some people that are claiming that nothing that is happening right now is on Biden. Yeah. Because Trump set this up. Sure. And what that means is that the fact that this is bad, the fact that this is a failure is because Trump set it up to happen. That's also bullshit. Yeah. That's also complete bullshit. So the big thing to understand is that it doesn't matter if we had left 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. 10 years from now, or, you know, when we ultimately did, Cabo would have fallen. Yeah. And there's a few important reasons for that. The biggest reason is the fact that the United States basically had propped up this weakened at Bernie's-esque government, which... And not the good Bernie's. (laughs) Not the good Bernie's. (laughs) um, Which there was actually a huge... uh, A huge publication of... Uh, classified documents by the Washington Post back in 2019 called the Afghanistan Papers, which will be linked on Patreon. I would encourage all of you to read through the article, which shows that the United States for decades, three different administrations, Bush, Obama, and Trump, were actively misleading the the public, the the American public, about what was going on in Afghanistan. Number one, they were misleading them about how well it was going. Mm -hmm. They were, like, there were interviews that were collected, that that were uncovered by the Washington Post from more than 400 insiders that basically said that there was unmistakable evidence that the war was going to be unwinnable. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the war was going to be unwinnable is because, number one, the government that we propped up, that we supported, was deeply, deeply corrupt. In fact, there's actually one army colonel who was interviewed. His name was Christopher Colinda. And he, was, he had been deployed to Afghanistan several times. And he basically said that the president of Afghanistan, um, Hamad uh, Karazi, was, quote, self-organized into kleptocracy, hmm. meaning embezzlement, bribery. He, he actually said, quote, I like to use a cancer analogy. Petty corruption is like skin cancer. 
There are ways to deal with it, and you'll probably just be fine. Corruption within ministries, higher level, is like colon cancer. It's worse, but if you catch it in time, you're probably okay. Kleptocracy, however, is like brain cancer. It's fatal. And the United States actively turns the other way to corruption, not just yeah. on the presidential level, within, within police officers, within the military. In fact, in fact, the United States actively turned a blind eye to child sex slavery among generals and warlords that we supported in the fight against the Taliban. Yeah. In fact, not only did we turn a blind eye, there were a few cases in which U.S. soldiers actually did something and they were discharged for it. For example, um, according to a report by the New York Times, a, a special forces officer named Captain Dan Quinn beat up an Afghan commander for keeping a boy changed to his bed as a sex slave and he was relieved of his command. Captain Quinn said, quote, we were putting people into power who would do things that were worse than the Taliban did. Another yeah. example, Sergeant First Class Charles Martland, a Green Beret. He was forced out of the military after beating up an Afghan local police commander who was a child rapist. He had abducted, he had abducted a child raped him, and then beat up the boy's mother when she tried to rescue the boy. And he was forced out of the military for it. Those were the people we were aligned with. Yeah. yeah. See, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, the Taliban is doing terrible things. Yeah. They planned to do terrible things. In the 90s, they did terrible things. Like, full stop. Yeah. They are driving a terrible humanitarian crisis. They will be depriving women of rights. They will be killing people, torturing people. They will be horrible. So 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 you don't want to like draw any false equivalencies, but the reality is that like the situation in Afghanistan in in was was not great and it was not going to be great and it was it w there were going to be a lot of these kinds of problems whether the U.S. was there or not, and certainly after the U.S. left. The government just wasn't strong. And, and like, the country is yeah. divided by, um, you know, tribalism and, and has never had a successful central government. Yeah. There's no reason to believe why, that, that we could establish one, and then when we leave, one would exist uh, in our wake. Yeah. In fact, um, one of the published interviews from the uh, from the Afghanistan papers was an unidentified former State Department official who told the government in interviews in 2015, quote, our policy was to create a strong central government, which was idiotic because Afghanistan does not have a history of a strong central government. The time frame for creating a strong central government is 100 years, which we didn't have. Mm -hmm. As Michael said, the issue was they were more of a tribal society. Yeah. And we tried to force our own Americanized version yeah. of a dem uh, of a democratic government down their throats and it just mm -hmm. didn't work out. And because of the rampant corruption that ended up happening, first off, among the people of Afghanistan, it it left us like it left them with the idea of, "Oh, this is what democracy is. Mm -hmm. This is what democracy looks like. This is what democracy is supposed to look like." And you know what they did? 
they turned to the Taliban. They would, they would go to the Taliban when something happened because mm -hmm. they couldn't trust the local police. They were corrupt. And that's, that's another important point. The longer that we stayed there supporting a corrupt government and being a foreign force that could potentially be perceived as an invading force, the stronger the Taliban became. Because yes. nothing, yeah. nothing mobilizes a group of people to join extremists like a foreign invading force. Yeah. That's how the Taliban started in the first place. Yes. Like the, the fact that we did learn nothing from that history blows me away. Like it wasn't like the U.S. went in to a utopian Afghanistan in the 90s or I guess in the 2000s and, uh, you know, messed everything up. The Soviet Union was there long before us doing on essentially the same mission. Yeah. The Soviet Union was there to establish a communist rule and to exploit the natural resources of this place. In response to that, uh, you know, multiple insurgency groups and, and, and anti-Soviet, uh, you know, militias and guerrilla groups developed and basically made it untenable for, uh, you know, the Soviet Union to stay. And yeah. then the Taliban came in to fill that power vacuum in the mid nineties. Yeah. That is how they, they came to power. And, um, and you know, it was only, we only started paying attention when the Taliban was harboring, uh, and providing a safe place for Al Qaeda to develop, which is the group that eventually, uh, you know, committed 9-11 and bombed the World Trade Centers. That's yeah. when we started paying attention. It wasn't about their humanitarian uh, problems. It was about us having to fight back against something yeah. and deciding that our retribution meant that we, should, we shouldn't just go there and, you know, remove this government. We should try to, you know, put something else in its place. And, and we failed. And also, let's not forget, back when the Taliban was the Mujahideen mm -hmm. fighting the Soviets, who armed them? We did. Yeah. The United States did. Yeah, we and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. In the country. Yep. In and order to spite the Soviet Union. In order to spite that the Soviet Union. That was our big motivation. We gave extremists weapons, religious extremist weapons, and they used it to to take over the government and yep. inst instill a th install a theocracy and eventually harbor people that attacked us. And, and, and the thing is, the important thing to note is that the Taliban is absolutely the bad guy. Like th yes. they're bad guys. Yes, right? absolutely. They're, yep. they're a religious theocracy. And them being in charge... And a violent one. And, and a violent one. They're terrorists. Yeah. And them being in charge is terrible. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, it was going to happen. Yeah. Regardless of when we left, unless we stayed forever. And the longer we stayed, the more civilian casualties would happen, the more people would die. Yeah. In fact, one thing that's important to note um, at the time that the Afghanistan papers were published, which again was in uh, 2019, the previous year, 3,804 Afghan, Afghan civilians were killed in the war. That's almost 4,000. Yeah. 
after we had already defeated after we had supposedly already (laughs) defeated them we had already achieved our nominal mission all right so yeah the people that we were propping up were terrible people Mm -hmm. they were corrupt and they drove more people to the to to the taliban yeah and importantly the fact that they were corrupt the fact that they were not they were they were ineffectively running this government the fact that they had that we had propped up this military that was completely dependent on the u.s coalition there um that was chronically uh under resourced at like the the soldier level because corruption meant that ammunition and food and supplies weren't getting to you know the soldiers the, that the roots of that corruption, the rot of that corruption, is what led, enabled, I should say, the Taliban, to, you know, not only to be to gain power, but also to uh, gain military supremacy so quickly. Yeah. Over mere weeks, they would yeah. take over cities, often with the the officials in the city, uh, or like you know the military tasked with defending the city, not fighting. And look. Biden is being blamed for the fact that he said that he didn't think they would take over this fast. Yeah. He's being blamed for that. But he also acknowledged that that fact just makes him more sure that he did the right thing, which mm-hmm. I 100% agree with. Yeah. The fact that they took over so quickly demonstrates how fragile that government was. Again, we were there for 20 years. Yeah. Like, yeah. we trained their military who then at the first sight of the Taliban threw down their arms and ran the other way. Now, yeah. some people are criticizing Biden for pointing that out and you know, almost, almost rhetorically making it sound like, well, the Afghan people didn't want to fight, so fuck them. No. Which, what he's saying, it, it, first off, what he's saying is just factually correct. People did throw down weapons because they didn't want to fight. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, it makes total sense if you are a soldier that doesn't believe your government is behind you, right? That yeah. is underfed, underpaid, yeah. far from home, and, you know, doesn't think there's any actual chance of winning because you don't have confidence in your government. Of course you're going to... Yeah. <laughs> like, and then and then the Taliban comes in with, with strength and threats to, you know, your family and, you know, and with your life and all of these things, like... Of course you're going to throw yeah. down your arms because your government is too weak and you don't have, you know, faith in it. You don't have support. You don't have military or political support. Yeah. And one other thing, the comparison that I keep, peop- I, I keep seeing people make is the fall of Saigon, mm-hmm. the end of the Vietnam War. Sure. And here's the funny thing about this. Before I actually started reading news about this, before, like, like at the time when... I, I had I, I I just was seeing that um, that Kabul had fallen. But the first thought in my head was, well, so this is just like Vietnam. And in my head, the comparison to Vietnam was a demonstration of how important it uh, it was for us to end this war. Yeah. Because the lesson of the fall of Saigon was not that we should have stayed there longer; it was that we shouldn't have been there at all. And mm-hmm. the fact that we had been there for so long was just it was just the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. And then I started seeing a bunch of mainstream figures like Jake Tapper criticize 
Biden, his decision to, to withdraw, by drawing comparisons to the fall of Saigon. What? <laughs> you think that the lesson behind the Vietnam War was that we should have stayed longer? Are you fucking high? <laughs> you think that the less, like, yes, it was embarrassing. Of course yeah. it was embarrassing. But the lesson was that we shouldn't have been there in the first place. The lesson was that we should have left sooner. And, and, and to anybody, to anybody who is trying to make the argument that this means that on, on American soil that we're less safe, just does not like like no, does not understand foreign policy or is probably just trying to mislead you. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing: most people don't recognize the fact that there actually is a measurable difference between the Taliban, Al Qaeda, and ISIS. Mm -hmm. Now, they're all extremist groups. They're all terrorists. They all have similar backwards ideologies. However, one really important difference is the fact that the Taliban is a guerrilla army in its own country. Yeah. The Taliban's ambitions is not global jihadism. It's not spreading Islam to non-believers outside of Afghanistan. It's controlling Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And also, we have been there fighting them for the last 20 years. If they were planning on attacking us, they would have done it while we were fighting them. Yeah. They, now that we're they gone, attacking us would be stupid. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it would be like trying. Yeah. Like, like you notice that they're not trying to get us. They're not like trying to like attack the Kabul airport. Yeah. Because like that's where we are. And they yeah. don't want to piss us off more. They just yeah, want we have, to we leave. have troops there and they know they know that if they attack that airport, that the United States will rain hell on their soul. Yeah. They know so, that. And that's the thing. Okay, so let's pause for a minute because the, the the thing is, this could have gone better. Yeah. Right. Like the it didn't. There didn't have to be death and destruction at this scale. There didn't have to be people stranded in Afghanistan, uh, you know, who are worried for their lives. U.S. allies who are not going to be able to get out. Thousands of American citizens who aren't yet evacuated and you know are basically at the mercy of the taliban uh to be evacuated from the country like this is going very poorly <laughs> and partially that's because of the speed with which the taliban was able to take yeah. over the country like kabul fell in 10 days in 10 days and and the uh, you know, the nearest term expectation from the intelligence community was that, that it was going to take 90 days. That being said, like you plan for the downside, right? Like you should be, if, if you're, you know, you know, uh, trying to, uh, you know, pull people out of a, a, a country relatively clearly, if you're trying to pull troops out, it means you should probably also try to pull your citizens out. Like the expectation was that Kabul would fall, right? Not, yeah. not, not as fast, but it, that it would like all yeah. of these things. It, it should have gone better. It could have gone better. Yeah. A lot of people's lives would be much better there if this was better handled. So, but that's just the most recent blunder in two plus decades of, of United States fuck ups in Afghanistan. And to Nathan's point earlier, like, 
it, the improvements would have unfortunately kind of been at the margins. Like yeah. we should be doing more. We should be trying, like trying to accept as many refugees as possible, trying to help as yeah. many people out as possible. Like all of these things. But as of right now, like the U S pulling out of Afghanistan, as far as I can tell is the right move. Yeah. Do it better. Sure. Like, and whether Trump did it, whether the Biden administration is doing it, like I imagine similar problems in the intelligence gathering and the understanding of the situation yeah. in the expected timeline would have occurred. Yeah. Um, so we can, and we can and should blame the administration for every, every unnecessary, you know, death, all the unnecessary destruction that we caused in our wake. Yeah. But the fact is that these, you know, uh, these cards were dealt long before yeah. this administration or the previous administration got there. And to Nathan's point, staying there is is just continuing to double down on the same mistake. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The one thing that I would actively criticize Biden for is the fact that as it stands, there are there there were an estimated eighty eight thousand people that had applied for US visas. So these are people that were allies of the United States, um, some in some cases interpreters, uh, in some cases families of interpreters, people that potentially face retribution from the Taliban. And of those 88,000, only 2,000 have been evacuated. Yeah, now, unacceptable. I will point out the fact that, you know, so, so Biden did make the argument that the Afghan government had actually told him that to, to, to hold off on evacuations because they didn't think that the fall would happen so quickly. And Biden just kind of believed that. Intelligence agencies seemed to think that it was going to take longer, and Biden just believed that. He shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. He was he was being given bad information, and he should have he should have had contingency plans. And I absolutely, like, I absolutely think it's fair to criticize him on that. Yeah, but totally. Overall, I think that he did the right thing. Yeah, I think he completely, completely did the right thing. Yeah, it was like, and 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 one of the other arguments that I want to address that I I keep seeing people make. And you'll, you've probably heard my counterpoint to this before. But the argument that you keep hearing is this is going to set back gender equality in Afghanistan. And there is truth to that. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were images of, of shop owners who were trying to spray paint over um, pictures of women who didn't have their faces covered. And that's probably going to... That, that is probably just the beginning. Yeah. Um, and look, you, you'd be an unfeeling bastard if you, didn't, if you didn't feel for people. Yeah. If you didn't feel for people. But it's also important to acknowledge that most of the world is horrifically oppressive to women. I mean... The example that I like that I usually give is the fact that in Saudi Arabia, there's a guardianship clause mm-hmm. in which women are basically property of, you know, of a male relative, a husband. They have no fucking rights. 
There's there's stonings for adultery. Like, yeah. Yeah. they have a backwards-ass government. And not only are we not invading them, they're our allies. We send them aid. We can't invade the entire world. We're not the world police. We cannot do that. And here's the other important aspect of this. The fact that our intentions with Afghanistan were clearly always corrupt. It wasn't about, like, they, they claimed it was about killing Osama bin Laden. He's been dead for 10 years. All right? So even if, even if you didn't, if, even if you did want to justify the original invasion of Afghanistan with we got to get Osama bin Laden, mission accomplished 10 years ago. And he wasn't even in Afghanistan. He was in Pakistan. But after that, you know, assuming like even if we want to give the most generous interpretation of like, even if we want to say, yes, that's why we were there initially. After that, the reason why we were there, it wasn't because we were trying to show the world how star-spangled awesome freedom is. It wasn't because we were trying to spread gender equality. It's because the military industrial complex. It's because they were rich in mineral wealth. They were rich in resources. And contractors were making millions of dollars on forever wars. And they were lobbying the government to keep us there because they wanted to keep making money off of those military contracts. So if the intentions were always clearly corrupt, of course the result is going to be bad. Of course the government that you create as a front for exploiting a nation because of its mineral wealth is going to be a corrupt government. Of course it is. Yeah. So Biden knew that this was going to, this, that people were going to give him shit for this. He knew that, like, he, he might not have known that it would, that Kabul would fall this quickly, but he knew it would fall. He mm -hmm. knew this would be a shitty situation. And he knew it was gonna, it was gonna leave a bad taste in everybody's mouth. And he did it anyway. And look, he, you know, the, the argument he keeps making is that he is unwilling to pass this responsibility on to another president. Bush did it, Obama did it. Which, by the way, during the Obama administration, Biden actually argued against the ramping up of troops in Afghanistan that uh, Obama ended up doing. You know, and then, of course, Trump did it. And he, he said, it ends with me. And look, I have been very critical of Biden on many issues. In fact, on this issue... When, when it, he first said that we were going to get out of Afghanistan, we did a segment in which I basically made the argument that I, I think he's full of shit. I don't think he's going to do it. I think he's going to find some excuse to, to, to leave us in there. And then when, when Kabul fell, I thought, oh, he's going to send him right back in. And he didn't. He doubled down on his decision. He expressed that he did the right thing. And he was brave. And I would argue that this right here is the biggest and most important accomplishment of the Biden administration. That being said, there is still a lot of work to do. So here's what the United States needs to do, because mm -hmm. 
if you really do care about the humanitarian crisis that has been created with the Taliban in charge, yeah. you know, regardless of the fact that the Taliban is now saying, oh, no, we're definitely going to support women's rights. We're definitely going to encourage women to be in government. Look, I'll believe that shit when I see it, but it, you know, <laughs> I, I yeah. if you if you take that at face value, like there's this really nice bridge on Mars that I'd like to sell to you. The fact of the matter is that if you if you care about this humanitarian crisis, we shouldn't just have a refugee program mm-hmm. for the people that were our allies while we were there. We need to let the people of Afghanistan, the people whose lives we have routinely fucked up for the last like three, four decades from from arming the Mujahideen to the 20 years that we have spent in Afghanistan, propping up warlords with, with child sex slaves, propping up a corrupt government, driving more and more people you know, to, to the Taliban, making the Taliban more powerful. We owe it to the people of Afghanistan to accept refugees. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, there should be like a blanket, sorry we fucked up your government, sorry we yeah. fucked up your country <laughs> refugee program. Not just for Afghanistan. Either. Not just for Afghanistan. <laughs> but that's how we help people. Yeah. The way we help people is not to continue to bomb the country, to continue to exploit its resources, to continue to prop up a government, a corrupt government, to continue to prop up pedophile warlords. Yeah. It had to end eventually. And Biden had the bravery to do it. And I will be singing his praises for the rest of my life on that. So now it's time for a more lighthearted segment. Good Actually. So Nathan, why do we do Good Actually? We do Good Actually. Because the world actually sucks most of the time. (laughs) It's a dark, deep, damn depressing (laughs) (laughs) like like yeah the the world it it feels like everything is just going wrong sometimes with climate change and of course everything that's going on in afghanistan and sometimes it's nice to take a second and just look around and realize that there is some good in the world and to acknowledge that so our good actually this week is actually 20 years overdue. (laughs) (laughs) So when the decision to invade Afghanistan was being discussed in Congress, when when they were going to be authorizing funding for the military, every single person in Congress, the House, the Senate, voted for it. Mm -hmm. Every single one with one exception. And that was Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who was still in Congress. And she actually said that, you know, she basically made the argument that as we pursue these people, because she knew that she was the lone vote, she knew that it was going to pass. She said, we can't become the people that we are trying to fight. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that the Afghanistan, I used to think that the Iraq war was my Vietnam, but based on based on what's what happened in Afghanistan based on all of the the misinformation the 
the spreading, the, the falsification of statistics or the the tweaking of statistics that the U.S. government had engaged in to to hide how badly the war was going. The Afghanistan war was much more closely um, is much much more closely comparable to the Vietnam War. Yes, it made sense to to go after Al Qaeda after they attacked us, but the Afghanistan war ended up being exactly what. Barbara Lee warned us about and she was and she ended up being right all along and I think that it was a brave vote and I think she deserves credit for it even Bernie one of you know one of my favorite politicians he voted for it Mm -hmm. so our good actually is that one moment in which one person in Congress was the lone voice of dissent and ended up being the only person that ended up being right. And that's good, actually. So now it's time for a very different kind of segment. <laughs> um, so Is it less depressing? No. <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. So, so last year, I think, we started a intermittent series of segments on the U.S. justice system. And because of, you know, all of these uh, segments are focused on problems with that justice system, um, this segment or this this series is called The Injustice System. And we've been kind of working through episode by episode through the stages of the justice system as one might experience them. And we've done a number of these, and we are literally still on the pre-trial process. Yeah. <laughs> um, we did so, take a break from it for a little bit, though. We did. To be we did. Fair. But we've done a number of episodes. We've talked about cash bail. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about um, uh, a bunch of different stuff. And and I think there's, unfortunately, a very long list of topics left to go. Yeah. Um, but this week, we want to talk about the challenges facing our system of public defenders uh, and and public defense in the United States in general. Um, because it is a a critical weak point in our uh, in our system of justice. Yeah. Yeah. One fact that I just looked up um, that I find absolutely amazing. So first off, it's important to understand that one of the biggest problems with public defenders is how chronically underpaid they are. Yeah. Like these are people that went to law school. Now we normally think about a person who is a lawyer as being like, you know, Oh, this, this person was in school for years and you know, they're the most elite of our society because they're a lawyer public. So, so the average annual salary, uh, and this is specifically in Florida for a public defender is $41,570. Yeah. And what's crazy about it is the point of a public defender is to be there to defend somebody who can't afford their own lawyer. Mm -hmm. What's insane is in order to qualify to hire a public defender in Florida, you have to have an income of 200% or lower of the current federal poverty line, which is $24,250,000. Meaning that public defenders in Florida, and it's not just in Florida, but this is, you know, this, this is a, 
really good uh, anecdote to this. Public defenders in Florida qualify for a public defender based on their mm. income, based on how low their income is. That blows me away. My God. Yeah. That's crazy. You see, and that's the thing. So so that's that's just one of the main things they face because public defenders are not these bumbling, incompetent lawyers who couldn't cut it at a big firm and and that's why they're out defending the little guys. Like that's sometimes how it's portrayed in movies and TV, but that's just like you just can't accept that as being the case. It's it's not the case. Rather, they're they're most often perfectly competent lawyers that are put in an impossible position. And um, so the point of, as Nathan said, the point of a, a public defender is to represent, because we have the right to a, uh, a fair and speedy trial in the United States. And um, as the result of a Supreme Court case, we actually have the right to a defense. We have the right to be, have adequate uh, legal representation. And, and that's critically important, right? Because like, if you can't, if, if, if a legal defense is dependent on having the money to pay for a lawyer, then our legal system is uh, significantly um, biased against the poor, right? If, you, if your literal ability to have someone who even knows the law you know, talk to a judge on your behalf is dependent on how much money you have, then we can't say that we have an equal system of justice. We've got systems of justice that are different for people of different socioeconomic statuses. So that's the point of the right to a lawyer. Yeah. The problem is we're almost, we're not in that different of a position today than before you had the right to a lawyer. So the Justice Department estimates that between 60 and 90% of criminal defendants nationwide, depending on the year, cannot afford their own attorneys. So a huge percent of the people that are actually char like, you know, charged with a crime um, require public assistance. They require a public defender. Um, and furthermore, of those people, when, when it comes time for them to be in front of a judge... 90 to 95 percent of them will enter a guilty plea yes not just not because they're guilty yep but because they don't have a good defense because yes. they can't afford a good defense yeah yeah they can't afford a good defense and the public defender as competent as they might be doesn't have the time to provide them with a good defense so so in like one one lawyer from louisiana uh, talked about it this way. So she said, every second week, a stack of 40 files appear on my desk, each representing a person who has been arrested for a felony, like stealing a pair of shoes from a mall or starting a fire. I would have about an hour per case to meet with my client and discover whether they were innocent. Then I would need to go to the prosecutor's office for a meeting that lasted about an hour, which meant I could spend about a minute and a half negotiating each case. The prosecutor would carefully consider the case one by one, then explain that my client would be offered some sentence less than the maximum if he waived all his rights and admitted guilt at the next court appearance. So, so just to put it in a little bit of perspective, that, that hour to meet with the client and minute and a half to discuss with the prosecutor, um, that's all part of the like, pre -pro like the pretrial process. 
And that actually seems generous. According to one study uh, in New Orleans in 2009 by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, uh, def public defenders have just seven minutes to prepare for, to defend someone's case in court. Per case, they have seven minutes. Yeah. And, and so to Nathan's point, like, 90 about 97 percent of criminal convictions in the u.s are as a result of a plea right because those public defenders have almost no time uh to prepare a defense judges have no patience for the public defenders actually mounting a defense um one public defender said that of the thousand people that she represented during her career as a public defender, 25 of them had a trial. 25. And at the same time, 20% of exonerations in the U.S. in 2020 were convictions based on guilty pleas. Because to Nathan's point, it's, again, it's not about whether you're guilty or not, right? You enter a guilty plea because you can't get an adequate defense yeah. and because the consequence of getting a bad defense and not entering a guilty plea is more time in prison or a higher fine. Yeah. I mean, think and of so, it this way. You're, you're, you're accused of a crime and prosecutor basically says you go to, if, if you enter a not guilty plea mm -hmm. and we, the court finds you guilty, you get five years in prison. But if you plea guilty now, then we'll give you one year. Yeah. And and your if, lawyers talk to you for five minutes. And your lawyers talked to you for five minutes. They've only been able to spend seven minutes in all researching your case. You're going to take that deal. Yeah, absolutely. And let's think about that. Like if 97% of crimes, of criminal you know, charges are convicted without a trial, to me that implies that the trial doesn't seem necessary. Right. We, we are sending people to prison sometimes for long times without a trial. And the main function of a jury trial is to determine guilt. Right. Like what a jury finds is fact is 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 whether the facts are such that the defendant is guilty. So if 97 percent of convictions occur before guilt has been determined. Then. We don't have a system where you are guilty and where you're innocent until proven guilty if you have a public defender. We have yeah. a system where you're presumed guilty and good luck if you can prove otherwise. And whether you get a public defender is completely based on your income. Yeah. In fact, um, in Fresco, California, the ACLU actually filed a lawsuit against the county because the offices were so understaffed. And again, the biggest reasons why the biggest reason why public defenders spend in some cases spend like seven minutes on each case is because they're so understaffed. There are so many yeah. cases flooding in. That's all they that's all they can do. Mm -hmm. So in Fresno, California, they were so understaffed that they couldn't provide effective representation averaging 1,462 cases per year. Per The attorney? recommended caseload, yeah, 
the recommended caseload is no more than 400. Hmm. So the, the public defenders are taking four times the recommended caseload. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. And that's the thing. They're in such desperate need that, yeah, their caseload puts them in, in a position to fail. And the only way that they can help even serve to help their client at all is to try to get them a shorter sentence with a guilty plea. Um, one, one anecdote, this, this one lawyer, one week after becoming, after grad, like taking the bar exam and passing was defending clients in Louisiana facing mandatory life sentences on felony charges. Like this, the same Louisiana office has nine investigators that handle more than 18,000 felony and misdemeanor cases each year. 18,000 cases for nine investigators. And and let's think about, like, for a public defender, the investigator is what the police are to uh, the prosecutor, right? They're responsible for gathering all of the important evidence, all of the, you know, uh, you know, footage, witness testimonies, going, finding people. Like, they're responsible for making the whole case for a yeah. defender, investigating the whole case. And those nine people, 18,000 cases... Uh, divided by nine investigators and just looking at like the number of working days in a year, each investigator has eight cases per day, which means they have an hour or less per case to do all the investigating necessary to mount a, a defense, which means that there is no sufficient defense. And if that doesn't sound bad enough, at least those offices have investigators According to a study by the Bureau of Justice, 40% of all public defender offices don't have a single def uh, investigator on staff. Mm. 40%. <laughs> so, so, the, the, so the, you know, the, the fact that Michael was just talking about, those are the lucky ones. Yeah. They at least have investigators. Yeah. Yeah. This is just... This it's is just unforgivable and this is the case for 60 to 90 percent of defendants that's what blows my mind is that this is this is not some exception this is the way our justice system works for criminal defendants it's the it's it's the most common way to be defended is by someone that hasn't is barely read your case yeah it's and 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 so the idea that like we have a system that sufficiently doles out justice, especially in the face of all the other glaring problems with our system. You know, the, the one assumption when, when we think about our justice system is that, well, at least everyone is afforded an adequate defense. You know, like, okay, we have an adversarial system of justice, sure. It's the prosecutor's job to gather all the information to try to convict someone. But as long as we have an adequate and full-throated defense, justice will be served. The problem is these people are overworked, underfunded. They don't have the time. According to one study in 2009 by a, uh, a uh, law professor at California Western School, for every dollar in California spent on a prosecutor's office, 53 cents are spent on a public defender's office. They're either side of the same courtroom. 
Yeah. Both run by the state and funded by the state. And somehow prosecution gets double the funding of defense. And we're supposed to think that we have an even-handed system of justice. You know, yeah. by the time you by the time you're charged with a crime, you're guilty of a crime. Yeah. Sixty to ninety percent of the time. So how do you solve this? Honestly, a huge part of it comes down to pay your fucking public defenders more. Yeah. One of the biggest reasons why there are so few public defenders is because no one wants to be a public defender because mm-hmm. they don't make shit. It sounds fucking terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So in, you need to incentivize it. You need to subsidize law school for public defenders or mm-hmm. cancel student loans currently for public defenders. You got to increase their pay significantly yeah. for public yeah. defenders. At least pay them the same as you're paying prosecutors. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're not paying them the same as you pay prosecutors is just an obvious <laughs> problem. Like the it's idea like, that that we don't have equal I mean, that's funding favoritism. mandated. That's yeah. favoritism towards conviction its, in the most in like in the most obvious way. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and, and and another way you could do it, right, is by um getting uh legislating federal funding for public defenders. Like like we have a system where you have the federal right to a lawyer. It's under the Constitution. Like the Supreme Court has determined that you have a, a right to a lawyer under the Constitution. And yet it is up to the states to determine and allocate funding. And that's not a very popular thing because everybody, because, because the public perception of, uh, you know, defendants is that they're guilty. And so, like, there's a reason why, you know, uh, attorneys general and 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 um you know uh and prosecutors are popularly elected positions <laughs> where that run on like making you safer with law and order um and like that gets a lot of funding so one way we could do we could help this is by trying to take some of that funding burden off of of states and off of like more fickle local governments yeah absolutely another way we could do it which we talk about a lot on the show is just reducing the number of uh criminal offenses yeah just like getting rid of some and and getting rid of especially getting rid of some that uh carry jail time or just reducing or removing the jail time for it because misdemeanors take up a huge amount of time for public defenders they're a really important part there's like it's a huge proportion of their their time and focus um but they're for things like putting your feet on a subway seat or riding your bike on the sidewalk. And so they inevitably get less focus relative to like felony cases from those public defenders. But as we've talked about before on this show, um, they can have really outsized impacts. You know, if people are convicted of misdemeanors, they could lose their job. They could lose access to subsidized housing. They could lose federal loans or other public benefits. Um, you know, if, if someone is, is held, uh, for cash bail and they don't have a a lawyer there to help bail them out, um, they could like, you know, they could lose their job. They could, you know, lose custody of their kids. All of these knock on effects of having a, a rigid and inflexible system that doesn't account for people's varying needs, uh, means that every, every crime, no matter how small can have a really big effect on people's lives. And so we should limit 
what counts as a crime severely. One other thing that I wanted to mention as well is like, it's, it blows my mind that prosecutors are so much more popular. You know, there's a reason why we get so much more money is, is they're politically popular because they run on public safety. They run on locking up bad guys. But if we know anything about our justice system, it's that once you get into it, it's really hard to get out of it. Once you are convicted of a felony, you're way, way more likely to be convicted of a felony again in the future. Recidivism rates are very high, specifically because we make life after prison or life after a felony conviction really hard. And one um, of the biggest drivers of crime is poverty. Yeah, exactly. So if you commit a crime and it puts you in poverty you're more likely to commit another crime. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, and if you're in poverty and you commit a crime or if you're in poverty and you're just charged with a crime, um, you're more likely to get a public defender and you're more likely to be convicted. And once yeah. you're convicted, you're more likely to be convicted again. Yeah. And so like to me, the big, one of the biggest takeaways is that Prosecutors don't drive public safety. They drive prison populations. Public defenders drive public safety. Public defenders, if they're adequately funded, adequately supported, can actually provide defenses for people. They are the ones that are going to keep, they're gonna, the ones that are going to balance the justice system, keep innocent people out of prison, uh, prevent that vicious cycle of, you know, towards lifelong imprisonment from starting and ultimately like make a better society and better citizens. Um, yeah. So like not only is this a matter of terrible injustice for people that get stuck with, you know, an insufficient, uh, public, public defense. It's also a really critical, uh, point of leverage for our society mounting a, a full-throated criminal defense is a great way to help reduce mass incarceration um, and make us all better off and so now it's time for our favorite segment asshat of, of the week. week so nathan who is our asshat this week well michael our asshat this week is Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Greg Ooh. Abbott, come on down, Greggy come boy. on down. Man, th what great timing that he's our asshat. I think just like a week after we discussed all of his <laughs> his and Ron DeSantis' shittiness about, <laughs> about, so, uh, about COVID. So what did Mr. Abbott do to, uh, to land on our podcast today, Michael? Well, you know, funny you should ask. Normally, we wouldn't have someone on our podcast for this thing. If just your average Joe were to do this, uh, we would not have them um, as an asshat. But because it's Greg Abbott and he has his certain proclivities, he is our asshat because of it. And it is because he got COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he's out there literally like banning uh, businesses and schools 
from taking precautions and requiring masks and things in their in their locations. He's literally preventing people from protecting themselves from COVID. And then he gets it. And there's yeah. just so much cosmic justice in that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm pretty sure he is vaccinated. He is. So, you know, to be clear, there's very little chance of mortality, which is why we feel okay with laughing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and of course, as always, we are anti-death on this podcast. Always. And we do, we do wish the governor a speedy recovery. Mm-hmm. And we also wish for him to go fuck himself. Yeah, we sure do. <laughs> He's, like, he, he is single-handedly making his state way worse off with COVID and, and not just because he's now contributing to the case count. Yeah. <laughs> While also blaming immigrants for it. Oh my God. Yes, of course. Can't forget about that. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> dude, but worse. a Mexican didn't give you that. Sorry, dude. It's, it's almost definitely not because you're out at the border, you know, giving out water bottles and making sure everybody's okay. Uh, yeah. no. Yeah. So I'm going to say basically what I said when Trump got COVID, which is, fuck Greg Abbott. He's a terrible human being. He's a disgusting human being. He's a sociopath. And I wish him a speedy recovery. <laughs> so congratulations to Greg Abbott for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. Okay, so for our last segment tonight... We are going to uh, take a page out of uh, the Fox News handbook, and we're going to dedicate a whole segment to talking about wokeism. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) So as you know, on this show, we talk a lot about talking. Because we we think like rhetoric is really important. Like not only how you say something, but the words you choose, what you say, uh, the messaging you use, especially if you're in a position of influence or power, um, yeah. all of that makes a really big difference. Yeah. And I mean, I am a professor of communication. <laughs> yeah, he's a professional meta talker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, and and so we wanted to talk about the kind of erosion of the meaning of woke, and the way that uh, at this point. Republicans and, uh, you know, the talking heads just use it as yet another scare tactic. Yeah. So let's talk about what wokeism is first, because this, this is one of those things where there might be a shred of a conversation to be had about it. And the right decided to capitalize the fuck out of that where they just completely diluted the discourse. Mm. All right. So one of the criticisms, one of the common criticisms that you might make about the concept of wokeism is, you know, and that's depending on how you define it, is it being performative. Mm -hmm. So I do think there is a conversation to be had of performative wokeism. Yeah. Basically the, it's the, the CEO that goes out and talks about how, oh, look at all these women that we have in our company. Oh, look at all these black people that we hire. Oh, we don't hate gay people. It's like, great, wonderful. How much do you pay your employees? Minimum wage. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, you're not 
you don't really get... helping anybody. I mean, yeah. like it, it's it, it's that type of performative wokeism. Yeah. The person that's only ever posted something on their Instagram as a form of activism. <laughs> and also, I do think that there is a conversation to be had about how there are some there's some linguistics mm-hmm. that those of us within academia or those of us who have been through academia might recognize, but to which the common everyday American that might not have, that might not have gone to college or, um, you know, doesn't have as much interest in, in studying such things is just completely unfamiliar with. So for example, Let's look at the term Latinx. So mm. within academia, um, the term Latinx is often considered the politically correct term to use to refer to people from Latin America. You know, number one, it's not gendered like Latino. Number two, it's better than Hispanic because not everybody from Latin America speaks Spanish, and that's what Hispanic literally means. Um, and it's more general. Apparently, most people within the Latinx community, don't even use that term. Hmm. And if a person, if, if a common everyday person were to, were to come up to you and use the term Latino, now, there might be a reasonable academic reason that you could make for why it's better to use gender-neutral terminology. But if that's what you're focusing on in the moment, you're going to turn the person off hmm. because it's going to feel performative. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately not that important, not that important, not that productive. Like it yeah. depends on the discourse, but if the point is to talk about something more relevant then yeah, you know, like, like, like think, think of it this way. Say a person were to, were to come out and say, Hey, I think that we ex- should accept more Latino immigrants. Yeah. And you were to be like, excuse me, it's Latinx. It's like, okay, but they're talking about the right policy. Yeah. You know, like, and that's the most important thing. You're being performative. They're talking about actual policy. Mm-hmm. So I think that, and, 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 and it is complicated because there are definitely a lot of instances in which language does impact the way we view something. Oh, absolutely. You know, and so there are definitely cases like in individualized conversations in which what might be considered performative wokeism does still have a place. Like, for example, um, if someone is purposely uh, not using a person's pronouns in conversation, they're just being rude. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I think it's perfectly okay to just, you know, point out. Like, if the person's not doing it intentionally, like, you know, be polite about it. Um, but I think that's completely reasonable. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is just rhetoric, but it does, but it does matter. So again, I think that there are, there's a conversation to be had about the concept of performative wokeism. And yeah. I think that there are points that people can make, but that's not what the Republican party is doing. <laughs> no, it's not. And so not that was, that was me trying to steal man the yeah. conversation. Here's, <laughs> yeah. here's how it's actually happening. <laughs> so, yeah. So like the, the term woke has been around actually for over a hundred years. It is yeah. about, and it, it until like 2014, it was almost exclusively used in the black community. It has a long history in that community, specifically of talking about um, staying aware, protecting yourself yeah. uh, from racially motivated attacks of various kinds. Yeah. Um, 
you are as a matter of survival and defense you must stay woke uh to these like systems of oppression like yeah and and in 2014 or thereabouts um so especially with the killing of michael brown uh and kind of the beginnings of the black lives matter movement this became uh this kind of entered more into the mainstream um meaning to keep watch for police brutality and unjust police tactics. And since then it's evolved into kind of this, uh, um, in certain, in, well, it's involved into a lot of different things as these terms often do in certain communities. It still is that social justice focus, right? It is still that one, the, that term that means you, you have to stay alert, looking out for systems of oppression. Yeah. Um, in other communities, especially with people with like liberals trying to be hip, it's kind of the uh, uh, or with Republicans trying to uh, discredit liberals, it is kind of a one word summation of like leftist political ideology. And yeah. then on, on the right with Republicans, it, it also just tends to be a sarcastic way to refer to all the silly things that liberals are trying to fix. Yeah. I mean. And one of the biggest examples that as soon as I saw this, I like, it just could not have become more clear to me that woke just no longer means anything, especially it, it, whenever a Republican says woke, the word woke, it just does not mean anything. Yeah. Uh, it was actually when Josh Hawley was talking about the latest infrastructure bill that was passed by the Senate, the, 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 the bipartisan one, which by the way, side note, I need to make a quick retraction. Um, about to, to a statement that I made. Uh, I said, it might've been last week's podcast or the one before that. I said that the, the, uh, the bill because of, um, asset recycling and privatization, that it was, that that was so poisonous that I would have voted against the bill, like Mm. out of context. Um, the final version of it, it does still have some of that, but it also does include, a lot more uh it does include a lot more funding towards essential um essential infrastructure than than i thought previously so i i just i would like to retract that statement overall Mm -hmm. i think it is a net positive yeah now to come back to to that um (laughs) but josh holly doesn't think so he actually said quote this isn't really an infrastructure bill at all this is a woke leftist bill that has been hijacked by the left and is full of left-wing policies, woke policies like gender identity mandates, which no, it doesn't, and potential potential gender identity cause of action against nonprofits in this country and racial equality mandate and a racial equality mandate and the Green New Deal. All of that is in this bill. So none of that is in that bill. Oh, my God. The Green New Deal is definitely not in that bill. But but let's let's. I mean, we can I just pause for a second on can I just pause for a second on the racial equality mandate? Um, uh, uh, you just dude, said the quiet part out loud. You said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> you fucking idiot. The, the racial, that's the racial. <laughs> there's been a racial equality mandate since like 1866, like 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. You fucking asshole. Like, the Civil Rights Act, you fucking dickhole! Like, oh my god! <laughs> and and asshole. and thanks for going ahead and identifying that the left is the party of of racial equality because Republicans have still been pretending that that's them. 
Yeah. So thanks for thanks for saying the quiet <laughs> just part. Just clarifying out loud. that. But yep. again, if we're just talking about simple racial equality as woke, and again, if we're defining woke the way that the right defines woke, again, not the not the historical way in which the black community defined woke. In that case, yeah. I, it actually is appropriate for this circumstance. But if we're defining it the way that the right defines woke as being performative, that's just bullshit. If we're talking yeah. about the Green New Deal, fighting climate change, which, I mean, this bill doesn't even include the Green New Deal. I mean, what a laughable concept. Mitch McConnell voted for it. Yeah. This, Mitch McConnell voted for it. This is a bipartisan infrastructure. Like, <laughs> like, most Democrats don't even support the yeah. Green New Deal. Mitch McConnell voted for this. Yeah. This like, bill incorporates relatively basic climate change, like, <laughs> climate yeah. change. Uh, but measures. but even if you even if you are trying to make the point that simple tweaks to fighting against climate change is performative, yeah, is like performative woke politics. It seems to me like he's going back and using the word woke the way that it was normally used, originally used by the black community, to basically just mean understanding power systems. So mm. basically. Woke leftism, according to this definition that he is presenting, is just solving problems. So that's what it is. So that's the thing. And again, it's the quiet powder out loud thing. It's like all of these basic things that solve problems that almost everybody agrees are problems is somehow woke. And because, but because they get to take this term, they get to, they get to, use a term from the black community, right? They get to use a term that they can try to associate with more radical policies. They can try to discredit very basic problem, like legislative problem solving with uh, these like more extreme views, which is exactly what they've been doing with communism, the word communism, the word socialism. Like it is the exact same uh, uh, process that Republicans seem to, to take with every uh, concept right they yeah. they take the they take the word they define extreme policies with that word then they overbroaden that word to cover everything so that all of a sudden anything any productive thing the democrats try to do gets discredited gets marred by the dirtiness of the word that they have defined the thing is, the Republicans don't have any substantive arguments against yeah. anything at this point. Yeah. They don't have substance. They don't have policy. It's all just they have culture are bullshit. rhetorical. Like, are, all they have are rhetorical buzzwords. Yeah. They are the party of rhetorical buzzwords. That is the yeah. only reason why anybody ever votes for them. Yeah. They're the party of rhetorical buzzwords. Yep. And what does it say about the Democratic Party? That they can't defeat a party that is only rhetorical buzzwords. I mean, come the fuck on. Be substance. Like, 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 the Democratic Party, the biggest problem with them at this point is the fact that they don't realize that when they help the American people... The American people like them, and the American people vote for them. So if they actually do end up 
passing the partisan infrastructure bill, the human infrastructure bill. I think they're going to, I think that they are going to maintain power in the midterms. Mm -hmm. If they don't pass it, I think they will at least lose the house. Yeah. Hmm. And they're going to lose the house to these fucking clowns yeah. that they openly mock the idea of solution-based politics, mm -hmm. of addressing actual issues, of trying to solve problems. If you have no interest in solving problems, get the fuck out of Congress. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what legislation is about. That's basic. Like, like that is... Like, when I was a political science major, that was literally day one. Day one, when we talked about government, was the point of the legislature, the point of passing laws, is to solve a problem. If you have no interest in solving any problems because of wokeism, you have no business being in Congress. That's the thing. Half of Congress agrees with you. The other half just thinks it's their responsibility to defeat the woke-topians, as to use Matt Gates's term, and to own the libs. And with that, we will end our episode as we usually do, on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, my highlight this week is that I have just accepted a full-time position at my university. Um, I'm no longer going to be working part-time. I, I, I'm going to be a full-timer for this semester or for, for, for this year. And it is, it is so big for me and my family. Um, it means so much to me to be able to have this, to be able to do this, to be able to, um, work with, work with students at just one place to not have to mm -hmm. divide my time between a bunch of different institutions. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and I'm so excited to, to start this semester. Dude, I'm so, so excited for you. I don't envy your workload having to prepare for a class that starts in like, what, a week and a half? <laughs> if we need to take a week off the pod, let me know. Uh, <laughs> we, should, we should be fine. Um, but I'm so excited for you. I know how long yeah. you've been working towards this. I know that yeah. there's no better person for the job. Yeah, Mike, Michael and I have been having private conversations about this for a really long time. I've been, I've... <laughs> Uh, he's, 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 he's been a shoulder to cry on during some of the, <laughs> some of the difficult times and some of the stressful times. And I really appreciate that, Michael. Um, so it, it's, yeah. And, and last week the, the, it was that I had gotten an interview, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I, I, I felt like it wasn't appropriate for me to talk about that publicly on the pod. Um, but now I, I, I just, just today got the phone call that I got the job. So amazing. Yeah. So proud. So, Michael, what what is your uh, what is your highlight? Oh man, that's a good question. I think I think my highlight is looking forward to my vacation in Alaska in a couple of weeks. Bree and I have been like prepping for that and planning for it, and it's just going to be really awesome. It will be the most remote we've been for the longest amount of time. We'll be like unconnected from most of the world for like two straight weeks. It's going to be fucking awesome. <laughs> And so with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.